Welcome to the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. In January, Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark will become the fourth highest ranking member of the U.S. House of Representatives. It will come at a moment when the country faces multiple crises and at a time when some are even expressing concern about the very foundations of our functioning as a stable democracy. She was elected last month to be the Assistant Speaker of the House, and Congresswoman Catherine Clark joins us this week on the podcast. Welcome, and thanks so much for taking a few minutes to talk. Oh, Michael, I am so glad to be here with you. Well, we're having this conversation for listeners' benefit on Friday morning, and so certainly the most pressing question of the moment for Congress is whether a new economic stimulus package will be passed. The the headline today, I have to say, in the Washington Post, at least, isn't particularly encouraging. It reads, economic relief talks in disarray as congressional bickering intensifies. What are the dynamics here, and do you think there's still hope for a deal of some kind before the year ends? Yeah, we have very clear dynamics. Mitch McConnell simply refuses to care about the suffering of the American people. And this dynamic has not changed for months. Uh, The House passed a comprehensive bill back in May, the HEROES Act, that was in response to what every medical expert and every economic expert told us, that we needed to invest in crushing this virus, in more testing, and making sure we had treatments, in investing in vaccine, thinking about the distribution now uh, instead of when the vaccine was available. It looked at unemployment benefits, making sure they were there for people, another check to help them get through this, increases in food and eviction moratoriums, all the basics that people need to survive this pandemic. And what we have heard from Mitch McConnell and many of my colleagues across the aisle is hit the pause button. Let's wait till after the election. And now, you know, they're saying uh, somehow we're not coming to the table. The truth of the matter is they don't care about this suffering. They have an incredible tolerance for the pain of the American people. And we are going to be there and continue to fight Uh, We can't take no for an answer. We have to get this emergency funding done as we are facing incredibly dangerous deadlines for unemployment benefits and other critical programs to support American families through this crisis. They're looming and um, are going to end on December 26th if Mitch McConnell does not take action. And so you hope there still can be some uh, some break in this logjam that uh, that you're that you're seeing from the from the Republicans in the Senate. You know, I we're going to re- keep fighting is all I can say. Uh, right. We are going to to remain there. We have uh, we have been at the negotiating table uh, since May. And sometimes it's been a very lonely place. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with Mitch McConnell saying that this whole deal may not be possible unless we are, you know, waiving all liability for big corporations is not an answer. We need to know how families are going to feed their hungry children, 
how are 40 million families who are facing homelessness going to be able to stay in their homes? How are the 12 million who are looking at unemployment benefits running out uh, on December 26 going to continue to pay their bills and get those payments? These are the fundamental crises of our um, of our time and of this pandemic, and it is it has gone from frustrating to absolute despair that we cannot get Mitch McConnell to agree to this fundamental help. The more we come down in our price, and it is not about the dollars, because if it was, we would have already solved this. It is about the fundamental feeling that they don't think the American families deserve this help. And that is very difficult to negotiate with, but we simply can't afford to give up on the lives of Americans, on crushing this pandemic, on making sure that our state and local governments remain functioning and are able to distribute this vaccine and that we are feeding hungry people. These are just basics that we need and we can do in this country if we had the cooperation of the Senate Republicans. Let's, let's talk a little about the dynamics of, uh, of, of the political picture in the House and, and in particular among Democrats now that you're rising into uh, an even higher role than you've already occupied. And of course, Democrats were elated by Joe Biden's victory and the end of Trump. But things didn't really go as expected or hoped for in the congressional races, and Democrats lost nine seats in the House. What do you what do you think went wrong there? Well, I think what went very right is the election of Joe Biden, and uh, and that we were able to hold on to the majority, uh, including in places that overwhelmingly uh, voted for for Donald Trump. So, you know, there are seats that I, I wish we had gotten, uh, that we didn't, but we do have the majority and that is going to allow us with a new strong ally in the White House, in Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, to turn the focus back on to the American people and off of just trying to appease a very dangerous president in Donald Trump. And we cannot act with enough urgency, um, whether it is this emergency relief aid that we are trying to get through while a president and uh, my Republican colleagues are focused on getting signatures on a, you know, a completely bogus lawsuit against um, states' fair election uh, processes. That is where their focus has been this week, while we are fighting for the survival of American people as we, as we inch towards this horrendous uh, milestone of almost 300,000 um, people who have lost their lives to this pandemic. And that number doesn't seem to be the focus uh, of my Republicans. What they're focused on is the election loss of Donald Trump and how he is trying to fraudulently undo it without any shred of evidence. So I am very heartened that we have the majority. 
uh, that we are going to be able to work with the Biden administration to turn that focus back to the things that American people need us to focus on, making sure that we crush this virus, that we expand healthcare for Americans, that we put forward an infrastructure bill that will create jobs and help save the planet at the same time. This is the agenda that we have been working on for the past two years in Congress. And I'm so grateful that the American people chose hope and integrity and science, and that we are going to be able to move forward on the agenda we have had uh, that puts the American people squarely at the center of it. So, so Trump, in many ways, um, as polarizing as he was, he was uh, often thought of as sort of a unifying force for Democrats. And now, now as he's on his way out, there's a lot of worry being expressed that that some of that unity uh, may be jeopardized, and that uh, you know we're sort of going to see the uh, divisions within the Democratic caucus. Are you seeing some of that? Are you concerned about it? Do you feel like there's a role that you can play in in trying to prevent that or bridge those those divides? Well, what I am uh, looking forward to in the 117th Congress is that our caucus is united in its purpose. And I think that you can look back at what we did over the last two years since gaining the majority in the House as our record on, on how we are going to govern going forward. And we passed by incredibly broad margins in our Democratic caucus, um, my milestone bills, whether that was starting with restoring voting rights and getting corruption out of Congress, uh, common sense solutions to gun violence, pay equity for women, raising the minimum wage, the Equality Act to make sure we have LGBTQ equality in this country, um, immigration reform, protections for dreamers, making sure that we are putting together a robust infrastructure plan. Uh, we passed the Moving Forward Act back in June um, that not only creates uh, so many jobs and, and puts a, you know, an economic uh, uh, stimulus package together for our country, but also addresses so many inequities, um, whether it's access to broadband or making sure that we have environmental justice and all of it done with an eye towards climate change and saving our planet. So these are the issues that we have been unified around. And I know that that is going to continue to be our work. And now we've got a new player on the field uh, with, with Joe Biden. And so I think that you know the Democratic caucus is excited about the work to come. We know it's going to be challenging as we see uh, this, you know, as we've been talking about watching how the Republicans are ha handling something as crucial as emergency aid to the American people. You know, we, we know what we could be up against if we do not successfully take the majority in the Senate in January. But we, we have shown that we are resilient and that our focus is on those issues that American families talk about 
around their kitchen tables. They're the issues I hear from families in Massachusetts every single day. And, you know, whether it's, will they ever have a next job? How can they rebuild the small business that they've lost or are on the verge of losing? Will they be able to access healthcare if they get sick? Um, you know, will they be able to keep a roof over their head? Um, can they find the food they need to feed their families? These are the issues that people in my district and across Massachusetts are struggling with. And they're the same issues that we are seeing families struggle with across the country. And that's where our unity lies in that purpose and making sure that we are seeing and working for the American people. Can you talk a little bit about how you see your role going forward uh, in, in, in the uh, position of, of assistant speaker that you, that you take in January? You've been described uh, in, in some uh, accounts as being sort of more low key, not always looking to grab the biggest headlines, um, but certainly not, that's not to be mistaken for any lack of uh, savvy or ambition. In fact, a recent article in The Hill publication in Washington uh, said you're sometimes referred to as the silent assassin. I'm not sure quite what that means. I think it means your ability to make things happen or wield influence without a lot of clamor or, or drawing a lot of uh, attention. But how, how would you describe your approach and what do you what is going to be your role in the House? Yeah, well, I, you know, I often think back to when I was thinking about running for Congress and not sure. I, I wanted to join Congress as the most junior member of the minority party because it was about, could I be effective? Um, it wasn't about a title or ambition, but could being in Congress be an opportunity to make change, to, to get help uh, for, for people, um, to help our country move forward? And um, I had a conversation with then Congresswoman Nikki Songus that really solidified my decision to run. And she talked about the power of being in Congress is that even a discreet uh, budget line item, uh, a, a bill that gets, uh, doesn't have your name on the top, but that you worked on and matters to families at home, gets folded into a bigger bill um, that you are able to do with sometimes bills and, and policies that are not the stuff of headlines but affect millions of people for the better. And that's been my approach to leadership. How do we tap this incredibly diverse, talented pool of members of Congress and bring those ideas to the floor? And how do we make sure that we are showing the American people that we see them, that we know how to govern, that we are just not a party that is anti-Trump, but we're a party that is pro-opportunity, um, pro um, meeting this moment of racial and economic uh, justice. And we know that we have to seize, um, seize this moment uh, with a new powerful ally in Washington to make progress 
And I think that my role in leadership is going to make sure that we remain laser focused on that, that the issues around racial justice, around economic opportunity for all, rebuilding not just to the status quo, but to an economy that is truly inclusive and addressing climate change and making sure that we are acting with the urgency uh, that climate change presents to our planet, to our very existence. So, you know, this opportunity is about making sure that we can make progress on all those areas and that we continue to be unified as a caucus in that purpose. And for me, especially, it is also about having women at the table because I think the priorities change when women are at the leadership table. And as we are seeing this recession that has rolled out in the wake of the pandemic, um, many economists are calling it a she-session because the impact on women is so profound and so devastating. Currently, we're seeing one out of four women leaving the workforce, often because of issues of childcare or an inability to care for family members at home. And um, that, you know, all these policies that we have not paid enough attention to, investing in childcare, making sure we have paid sick leave and family leave, making sure we have a $15 minimum wage and that there are opportunities um, for women and respecting and valuing the work of women um, have all come home to roost in this pandemic. We knew they were there before, but this pandemic has shown and brought these issues into stark relief. In pursuing some of these uh, these issues like racial racial justice, which you put sort of as one of those at the forefront, is there is there a danger of Democrats um, maybe having sort of a common goal, but but not quite all being on the same page in terms of the messaging? And I guess one thing I'm thinking of is uh, President Obama recently uh, in an interview uh, was pretty critical of some of the efforts around police reform and said that this defund the police slogan, uh, you know, he called it a snappy slogan and said it's the sort of thing that's counterproductive. And and I've and I know your your colleague Jim Clyburn has 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 said the same and said that he often had conversations with your late colleague uh, John Lewis in which they reflected on the parallels between that kind of messaging and some of the messaging in the 60s that they felt in their time in the civil rights movement wasn't always that productive. How do you, how do you sort of square that, or, or is something like that defund the police message, you know, not not the right uh, way to go? We've heard even some 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 in some cases. I think Jim Clyburn feels there was a Democratic uh, seat in in South Carolina that was lost uh, on that issue. Uh, you know, it is always the right time to quote Martin Luther King to do the right thing. And the murder of George Floyd captured the country's attention to what we need to do to not only address police brutality, but to also work on rooting out, you know, these, the institutional racism that pervades our, our institutions, our culture, our business community, our Congress, 
And so we can do both things. We can meet this moment of racial reckoning and we have to. And I think mm-hmm. you've seen House Democrats coming together, uh, passing police reforms back in June um, that were you know, supported um, you know, wholeheartedly across our caucus. And what we can't do is get uh, derailed by a disagreement over any particular message. Mm -hmm. This is a time in our country's history where we have to look at racism unblinkingly. We have to do everything we can. And as we address every single policy, whether it's creating jobs, addressing climate change, making sure that we are stabilizing childcare and that we are um, making sure that women uh, are not cut out of our economy in the wake of this pandemic. Um, We have to view everything through, is this not only um, are we undoing racist policy, but is every policy that we're passing anti-racist? Um, You know, we have to look at it through that lens. And, you know, that is the work that I know is ahead of us. And that is where the Democratic majority in the House is going to make such a difference in our country's history. The vision that we have of taking those ideals we talk about of liberty and justice and equality for all and truly making them apply for all. You know, we just look at healthcare. Um, We knew there were disparities in outcomes for communities of color, but this pandemic has shown us in a devastating and lethal way how those play out as we see the fatalities due to COVID-19 far outpace uh, uh, white communities. And for our black and brown communities, this has been especially devastating. Mm -hmm. So now is not the time to turn away from these discussions. It's the time to err on the side of being overly inclusive, of, of pushing ourselves to have hard conversations and look at our own role in creating systems that that perpetuate racism. And that is work that I know that our caucus is committed to and that we are going to finally have uh, an ally in the White House after four long years of a president who has used race in this country to divide us, to instill fear in people that somehow we can't just make a bigger pie, but that other people are taking your slice and there's no way to make it up. And uh, so, you know, I think that we have to remain on course and not let ourselves, um, uh, you know, continue to uh, succumb to the divisive rhetoric and actions of our current president, but turn the page and continue the work that was started. You know, we we lost some some titans in 2020, and one of them was John Lewis. Right. And he he said to us in the last time that he spoke to our caucus um, before his passing that while his soul 
you know, he was grieving that the soul of America was not in better shape. Um, he also felt more optimism than any time during his work for civil rights, that Americans saw this and they saw that unless we address racism in this country, none of us are truly going to be free and successful. And that he took optimism from that and that he had never been uh, more optimistic about what we could accomplish. So we have to remember those words and keep this work uh, going and at the forefront of how we evaluate and prioritize our policies. Right, and just one last quick thing. You are the fourth highest ranking member of the House and the three, the three leaders above you, the Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, Majority Leader, Steny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn are all 80 or in Hoyer's case, 81. And Speaker Pelosi signaled this would be her last term leading the House. So it sort of begs the question that there have been eight House speakers from Massachusetts. Would you like to be the ninth at some point and maybe sooner than later? Well, I can tell you this, whoever is our next speaker is going to have some tall stilettos to fill. And um, I am so grateful to be part of this leadership team. But uh, going back to my story about Nikki Songus, for me, this has never been about the title or the ambition. And I'm going to use this position that I have to do the very most I can for my constituents, for the people of the Commonwealth. And I think if we get the policies right for how families here in Massachusetts need our help, need our focus, we're gonna get it right for the rest of the country. And that's gonna be the work that I am committed to. We are at a such a, a moment in our history with this pandemic exposing all the work that we need to do. And we have to meet this moment. And I am so grateful to be at the leadership table to help promote um, that work and to truly bring those voices of my district. Those are the voices of the American people that sometimes get drowned out in our process. Bring them right to that leadership table and help us set a new course in this country. Uh, Congresswoman Catherine Clark, I want to thank you so much for talking to us today on the podcast. Michael, thank you so much. It's so good to be with you. I hope you stay well and have a, a very wonderful holidays. And the same to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. We'll see you next time.